Before you start listening, we just wanted to give you the heads up that this podcast discusses personal experiences of sexual harassment, which may be triggering. It also contains legal information, which isn't intended as legal advice, but we've included lots of useful contacts and resources in our show notes to help you find the individual support you need. I guess with sexual harassment, it's more about that's just how they are or that's just how it's been. What was the point in saying anything? I can't change anything, so you just put up with it. So I guess the biggest myth with that is I can't do anything about it. Really? Is this still a thing? Yep, in 2022, this is still a thing. A big thing. While the law is clear that you can do something about it, there's a whole lot of stuff that gets in the way of doing something about it. It's like there's a whole heap of baggage that comes with reporting sexual harassment that most people and organisations are struggling to get past. Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and on this episode of Rule of Thumb, we'll unpack the baggage. Then we'll have a crack at packing it up and getting it out of the way. I found myself unpacking some of the baggage when I got chatting with someone I know as Katie at a reasonably noisy function. So I was, I reckon about 18 or 19, and went for a pre-trainer and breakers of like a horse trainer. And the guy was about 55 or 50, 55, um, and he had lost his licence during driving. He had... Needed to go and check out some stallions in different farms and we had to go out and stay. This is in South Australia, in the, in the country South Australia. And we got out there and we were drinking. We had a couple of drinks there and he said, if we share a bed, then I get to pay a discounted rate because we don't have two beds to um, clean. And I still remember that I was dating a boy, a guy at the time, and I went outside and was so stressed out and had, like, what do you do? Like... So I just remember, and I was like, well, no, I'm like, I, like either we go home tonight or... But I remember that was such a big deal of me having to say no to my boss, who was 55 at the time. Did you ever do anything about it? Nothing. Did you ever say no? nothing? I didn't tell anyone, apart from my boyfriend. I just said no and hoped that he didn't push it because I wouldn't have known what to do. He was abusing his position of power and because I was in a position of nothing, like I was the weakling, I didn't have a leg to stand on. And I didn't think it was that, like, I thought it was just normal. I thought it was, it was normal. Like, I was seriously considering that I was going to get raped that night and I didn't think anything of it. And I didn't think I could leave. I was the one with the car. I was the one who could leave. But I didn't think that was it because he was in a position of power. I wait for him. Does that make any sense? It makes no sense, but it makes so much sense. And I, it makes me sad for me back then. What happened when you got back to work? Nothing. It was just went back to normal. Not talked about. Not talked about. Nothing. Because I think, oh, I don't know, I think I think when I was 20, which was 20 years ago, that people of age are always the respectable elders and we're not told to question them. I think that's where it comes from. I think that's where it comes from. It makes no sense, but it makes so much sense. Yep. Is it the same with the law? While the law makes so much sense on paper, 
In practice, it can feel like it makes no sense at all because, as Katie said, there's often a power imbalance. You've already met lawyer Henry Pill. He works in employment law and industrial relations, and he sees where some of the sense gets lost. Workplaces are, by definition, pretty hierarchical places. Uh, that We have bosses and we have senior management and junior management and, and, and then we generally have employees. I, I think that often people will mistake those workplace hierarchies um, for an authority which can't be questioned um, and therefore when we're dealing with people who are being discriminated against or harassed they feel powerless to respond. That puts people in a precarious position. Most people who have a job are not in a position where they can walk out of their job and not work. Often people will feel trapped because of that uh, and it's important that people understand that there are ways to deal with these issues in the workplace other than going get, getting a job elsewhere and allowing these cultures to perpetuate. Well, that's good news. We don't have to put up with it. But can we pack up the power stuff? While we're probably not going to get rid of hierarchies from our workplace after listening to a podcast, what can we do to better understand the power stuff so we can see red flags and act on them? Let's check in with Elise Whitmore, the Principal Solicitor at the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. Penny, if we look at the Harvey Weinstein case as an example, and I think that it is at that extreme end of the scale, um, we're looking at someone who held an incredible amount of power over the women that he was working with. He could and in fact did annihilate the careers um, of a lot of people who refused to engage with him or do what he wanted. He then said later that he didn't understand the power dynamics of, of those interactions. Whether you believe that or not is another question. But if we scale that back, what we're really looking at is what are the consequences for someone saying no? What are the consequences for someone not participating um, in flirting, going on a date, putting up with um, things that they're offended by or uncomfortable with? If there are going to be consequences for her, there is likely a power dynamic at play that to some extent impacts on the free agreement. What are some of the problems with the, the notion or the idea that she was a willing participant? You know, she wanted it. This is something that I really struggle with, Penny, because I think that we tend to look at these situations like, you know, she's an adult, she's capable of making her own decisions, you know, she's entered into um, a relationship or she's flirted back or whatever it might be, um, and that lots of people do meet their partners at work and that there is there's nothing illegal or problematic or wrong about people finding their partners in those situations. So it's really difficult when we're talking about willing participants or unwilling participants. What I would say is that there's no black and white rule, but for me there are some red flags about when a relationship might be problematic or when your advances to someone might be problematic. And they're really based on how much power someone might have over someone else whether that person makes decisions that directly or indirectly impacts that person at work, whether that person might be related to the boss um, and, you know, a 
protected person within the workplace and that if any of those things are place that you should seriously reflect on whether those advances you're making are safe whether the person that is responding to those advances might be keen but they might also just want to have their name on the roster for the following week because they need to pay their rent. So they might be nodding and smiling and being polite back, but that doesn't necessarily mean if there is a power play here that it's about the advances. Absolutely. I am struggling to think of an example where a woman has sought advice from me, where she's been sexually harassed, where she hasn't placated her harasser, smiled, nodded, um, gone along with it to a certain extent because it was just so much easier than not responding or calling it out or making a report. What does that mean then for the person who's doing the harassing in, in reading those signals? They have to be really careful about what the other person might be experiencing, not just what she's showing. There are lots of reasons why she will respond in a way that tries to placate you um, because it is not in her interests to do otherwise. So how do we set up policies that can deal with this stuff? So I know that our sexual harassment policy here um, at the Women's Legal Service talks about if there's been a situation that arises where um, parties have been in a relationship and it ends badly, um, we look at the person who has the most amount of power in the hierarchy as being predominantly responsible um, and and the cons- any consequences if there are going to be consequences will occur to the person who has the most power in that hierarchy. Is that a standard policy? I don't think so but we've had big discussions about it here and one of the reasons that we we took that approach was because we were seeing um, a lot of examples not just through our clients in the advice line but through other circumstances that um, were coming to light about Usually women um, in situations where they might be the receptionist or they might be a secretary, um, they don't hold a lot of power in their organisations, but they are always the one who suffers when things go wrong. Just when you thought you had your policy sorted, right? Before the end of the episode, we'll have a bit of a chat about creating policies that protect everyone, which is important for lots of reasons, including legal ones. What people need to understand is that there are really significant consequences in addition to harassment for victimising a person. Uh, The law is um, imperfect, uh, but certainly carries some heavy penalties uh, to people who attempt to to vilify or victimise somebody for making a complaint or expressing a concern. Welcome back to the podcast, Henry Pill, with that crucial bit of information that victimisation is also illegal. But what does it look like and what does it sound like? Let's double down with Tasmania's Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, Sarah Bolt. The person makes a complaint either internally or externally. There is a power imbalance. And the next time they find that they're not getting so many rosters on or all of a sudden they find themselves sitting in the broom cupboard, you know, they're, they're being moved around or they're not uh, in line for a promotion. There's things that happen which are detrimental to that person 
that the nexus is everything was going fine until I complained. So the nexus is I've now complained and things are no longer going fine. So I'm being victimised for bringing that complaint. Again, the law makes so much sense. But again, in practice, there's more baggage. And this is the sort of baggage that is so heavy, it breaks trust in our systems. In episode one, we heard from Elle, who explained the subtle ways that she felt intimidated, embarrassed and singled out by a lecturer when she was at uni. Here's how the system played out for her. When you know that it's a known problem and nothing's changed, it makes you question whether it's something that, that's normalised to the extent that, that you know anyone is going to view this as, a, as an issue, um, or are they just feeling like this is just him, we, we just accommodate this because it, you know you just need to learn to kind of stand up for yourself. So in the end, what I did was just go to another lecturer who I did trust. I'm really glad that I did do that because their response was, yes, I absolutely believe you. I've, I've seen this unfold repeatedly with students and, you know, their advice was absolutely don't take it to the uni in any kind of formal way because they, they will not support you. They, they will absolutely support him. As disappointing as that was, I, I really appreciate it because it was protective of me understanding that what I needed was a way to um, extract myself from this scenario as opposed to trying to use a mechanism that was unlikely to support me. Feels a bit hopeless. <laughs> I mean, did did you feel a bit a bit helpless? Maybe helpless. Um, yeah, felt felt very very much um, so. But this yeah, this this lecturer who I had gone to for advice, you know, what they said to me was, well, look, just started what they called a toilet door campaign. Um, use some graffiti or more any other kind of subversive means available to you spread the message, you know, in a way that would perhaps get get back to this person, let let him know that his behaviour had been noticed. Um, for a while there, I, you know, I did do that. Um, <laughs> write this guy's name on kind of whiteboards around the department with the phrase lecturer or lecture underneath. So, um, but I think it's absolutely right to say that it was a hopeless situation to some extent, and and that I didn't I didn't get the help that I needed. Yeah. So despite your policies, despite your processes, do you know what people are actually doing to try and stop this behaviour, where we work or study or live? Is it a hopeless situation? Are people deferring to toilet door campaigns or warning each other who to steer clear of because trust in the system is lost? Elle is not alone. There are many examples shared with lawyers like Elise Whitmore. The women that I speak with um, talk about they don't know if they will be believed or taken seriously. Um, They don't know whether they will have the support of people in management. Um, They really, they just want it to stop. They don't want to cause any trouble. They don't want anyone to get fired or lose their jobs. You know, they they really just want it to stop. Um, But they're not sure that they can rely on management or bosses or power structures within their organisation to deal with it in a way that's not going to make it worse. Could you rely on those structures? Are you reliable? Perhaps one of the reasons why this is so tricky to hear is that most of us are trying to get this right. But maybe we're just not there yet. Actually, it's not a maybe. Maybe. 
There is hard evidence that shows we don't trust people who report sexual harassment or assault. Anne Rose has published some really amazing statistics recently, unfortunately quite depressing. That is, it's the, the report's called Chuck Her on a Lie Detector, analysing the issue, you know, the concept of people believing that people make false allegations about uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault. And what they found was that something like 47% of Australians believe that people make false allegations about uh, this stuff. Um, but the national stats are around 5% of people making false allegations. And that's usually to do with things like family disputes around custody of children, things like that. So all those barriers to reporting are often concrete. They're not imagined. They're, they're real. This is Laura Davis. Laura is a primary prevention educator at the Sexual Assault Support Service in Hobart, and she spends her days talking with people, with schools and organisations, to train them up in ways that will remove sexual harm from our community. And she often asks them to consider if their own default is to believe or disbelieve. It's quite problematic that within our culture we have this disbelief default And I guess from a human level, especially if you know the person, like say in a workplace, someone comes and makes an allegation and you know them, you you might sort of go, they wouldn't do that, come on. And that's totally understandable, you know, because I think we don't want to believe that the world is as harsh or as bad as as what it can be sometimes. um, There's certainly no judgment from me if people go there, but it's highly unlikely that people lie about um, sexual harassment, sexual assault, because of all the barriers to reporting. Um, They're just endless. If you wanted to sit and make a list, you could spend half an hour easily. So there's plenty of hard evidence as to why people feel they won't be believed. And perhaps one thing we can all do right now is to check our own disbelief default. In episode four, Laura will help us have the sorts of disclosure conversations that take us past that disbelief default and into a place where we can be helpful and reliable. But first, we need to unpack some more baggage from the past where we've learned that the systems don't support people who report sexual harassment. Examples? There are plenty. Starting with Nadine, which is not her real name. I followed all the the advice and steps of the Sexual Harassment Committee. He was allocated his person and they were talking to each other. I don't... None of it was visible to me as to what was happening. And also the first thing I was told was I needed to not talk about it, of course, with anybody. That's, you know, and that and I get that. Um, but that's further isolating in the workplace. You, you really need this person is available to you to talk about it. You need someone. Anyway, so it came to be that went uh, had to go myself to um, the head of our unit and ask to to change to work with another another boss and the answer was basically no but you just don't have to come to work if you don't want to and I remember feeling it's like is this like I'm not the one I'm not the problem in this space but you want me to disappear. And I won this job. I worked hard to get that job, and I wanted to work. 
It's so obvious, right, that we need to be better than this. But we're not. Yet. Nadine is an advocate for women who's had some big learnings, one of which explains why we need to change names and leave details out in this series. And we'll have a special bonus episode about that with Nadine coming up in your feed. The good news is that many organisations, maybe yours, do have systems in place. But do you know if they're working? Like, really working? Let's check back in with Elle. The one process I felt like I could use for recourse was that we had a, um, you know, like a a semester-by-semester kind of evaluation, and they were meant to be anonymous. So in in that setting, I certainly said, you know, this this individual is kind of intimidating and controlling and and, and kind of inappropriate. And the consequence of that was that the evaluation forms, even though they were anonymous, they were obviously handed over to the lecturer and he came back to like our first class you know, holding them in his hand and he kind of just said to everybody, look, um, I'm getting some feedback that I'm intimidating. And he just said, look, put your hand up if you think I'm intimidating. Um, <laughs> and of course, we were all silent because we would have been, you know, putting our hand up as the, as the voice of dissent and complaint in front of him if we'd, if we'd raised our hand. So, you know, what's the purpose of mechanisms like that, which are not rigorous, not transparent, not independent, and actually contain within them the risk of real um, blowback and repercussions for the the people attempting to um, raise their concerns? It just makes us realise that there might be systems in place, but they might not be working. How could that system have worked better or what's another option that would work? Um, look, I, I think we need some sort of independent processes where we just audit institutions for, for power, you know. I think we need to do these power audits in our own spheres of influence where, you know, it might not be obvious to us, but we need to look at who we have, you know, intentionally or otherwise, we have we have power over and find out whether the people within those spheres are safe and are, and are being respected. Um, I think the other thing we have to acknowledge is that we actually really still are very attached to the idea of status, certainly in particular industries or sectors. And I really felt like for the lecturer, I think he really felt like this was something he was entitled to. You know, it was this kind of bohemian academic idea that had probably been passed down through generations of academics. That one of the things you're entitled to in your role is to kind of have access to, you know, protege students who are going to admire and, you know, wish to emulate you and that part of that is some kind of, you know, sexual access to them on some level too. So um, I think we also, if we're going to interrogate power, then we also have to really say, you know, are we genuinely willing to give up (laughs) those privileges um, that some people enjoy? Um, and, And, you know, we can look at almost any professional sector and say the same thing I think you know specialists in in medicine have enormous amounts of power people who work within the criminal justice system have enormous enormous amounts of power teachers in a classroom have enormous amounts of power if you work in in, um, residential aged care or or with people with disability you can have an enormous amount of power so I think um, it's not about saying it only affects people in, in, in certain professional domains I think we've all got spheres of power that we need to Um, get better at unpacking. Are you ready to unpack your power for good? What could you do tomorrow 
that would start to create the sorts of policies that break down that myth that we can't do anything about sexual harassment, that would pack up that baggage and build trust that our systems will support us. Two people who are constantly talking with organisations about this stuff through training, reviewing and drafting policies, investigating complaints and lodging claims are the CEO of the Tasmanian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Michael Bailey, and Senior Workplace Relations Consultant, Abby George. Uh, every staff meeting we should talk about policies and procedures and certainly for, for our team we do. So every staff meeting we firstly have a WHS section but secondly we go through a policy and procedure to make sure it's a part of our day to day. What does that sound like? How do you do it? Sounds a bit boring, to be honest. We're doing no, that. That's actually again. really important. So, so yeah, we we meet weekly as a team, and we literally have on our agenda, um, firstly a WHS part where we talk about are there any issues, are there any things we need to fix, but also we literally go through a policy. So we go through to see if it's still relevant, if we need to change things. Um, you know, so people have read it before they get into the meeting to make sure they're across it, and so it just keeps things in people's mind, and it helps people to remember that there are you know, rules, our internal rules about how we do stuff, and that's been built with the team. That's not just you know us as managers you know, developing things that's come from the team come from the ground up and in a lot of the training sessions that I do I often give this example how do you drive versus how do you drive with a police car behind you yeah. <laughs> you are the best and most safest and yeah, law-abiding <laughs> driver when there is a cop car behind you and it is the same with our policies and procedures it's about making it part of the day-to-day it's about making it as simple as possible i have people that walk in and bang down a 500 Um, page handbook on my desk and go look at us aren't we brilliant and I say what you've got there is a very expensive doorstop no one will read it no one will understand it 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 doesn't have to be complicated don't take 10 pages to say what you can say in 10 paragraphs just because it's longer doesn't mean it's better we just need to make sure it says what it needs to so people know what they need to do or their options when they need it. Because let's face it, particularly with sexual harassment, to actually get to the point of going, I need to know my next steps, that's a big step. Yeah. You don't then want to have that that process buried in amongst all these other things and, and people go, oh, I can't find it, it's too hard, I just won't bother. You need to people to be able to put their hands on it quickly to read it and understand it. There's no point as well having lots of legal words in it if people don't understand it. Um, Simple is better to go, yep, I know my steps. This is what I'm going to do and act on it. So when we say things like training, we're not talking about a two-day, you know, nine-to-five boring session. We're talking about 10 to 15 minutes. I think another myth is that it isn't good for business. I think, you know, really good policies, procedures around sexual harassment are great for business. And you look at the best businesses in Tassie, whether they be the best construction businesses right through to whatever, they have very clear and very, you know, heavily maintained policies in this space. So those great businesses, you know, they don't have weird stuff on the walls of their crib rooms. They don't have, you know, jokes being sort of thrown around the workplace. Uh, and they do really well as organisations because, again, they do it well. And this is another indicator of it being a good business. So, you know, it is great for business. It's great for productivity, great for the welfare of your staff, great for retaining staff. It's the right way to do business. How likely is it that some of these people are doing it as a tick box needs to be done? 
I think um, that's a great question with WHS in general. And I think there is um, always that component of, look, we have a responsibility to do this, so we'll do it. There. That way we won't get charged. And just jumping back for a sec too, we make sure that we have multiple contact points for people, which is something that businesses really must do too, because you never know who the right contact is going to be for somebody. And uh, you know, only having one person they go to talk to is fraught with danger. So I just you know, really would love to make sure people realise that, that in businesses they need to have multiple contact points. But you know, your question is a good one because... You know, we don't think we're a racist community, but we find it really difficult to get migrant people into work in Tasmania. So even though they're very highly qualified, it's really hard to get them placed in workplaces. So perhaps I'm being naive in thinking that we have moved a long way. But I do think that businesses understand their need to be stronger in this space. And I hope one good thing that has come out of these recent very high-profile cases is a heightened awareness that this stuff is still happening. Maybe we're also heightening the to-do list. But seriously, where are you at? What are you thinking about as you listen to this? You might be a fair way through this stuff thinking, yep, we have regular fun policy conversations, good training. But for others, well, you might be right at the start with the formal systems, ticking boxes or creating expensive doorstops. And what about informal systems? Yep. They're a thing too, a thing that executive coach, author and co-founder of training organisation Frontline Mind, Ian Snapes, thinks are crucial to building resilient, safe and effective workplace cultures. Managing an ecosystem of an organisation and creating the conditions to achieve the outcome, the intention that we're looking for here, of a safe environment where there's the ability to report requires probably multiple things to be happening. Your executive need to be role modeling. They need to be uh, eliciting that kind of feedback from their own staff, their own direct reports and amongst themselves. And I think probably the most important thing, and this is subtle, is you need uh, peer support networks. You need informal systems that can support and and tease out these issues. Uh, Often the informal systems are more valuable than the formal ones. A peer support network is a great example. Uh, You might have an organization of a thousand people. You might have 50 peer supporters. Their job is to to be a go-to. If I've got a problem in the workplace, I I can go to my manager, but what if my manager's the problem? Well, guess what? I've got this peer support network. There's somebody in there that I think I can trust. I'm gonna go and talk to them. And the peer supporters can be uh, can be activated, they can help through the system, uh, they can provide guidance how to get around some of the quirks of systems that don't work, they'll know who to trust. Uh, so you need informal mechanisms to support people. Like I said, this is not a simple, not a simple one solution. That for me is the most valuable. Let's get even more specific. When it comes to sexual harassment, what do these peer support networks or contact officers need to know? Alina Thomas is the CEO of Engender Equality and also runs training to support organisations to do this well. So it's really great if there's somebody who can be a champion or an expert or, you know, the go-to person that understands what the unwanted predatory 
harassing behaviours look like, um, also understanding what the impacts actually are um, on, on the person who's been abused or harassed and knowing what the pathways would then be for that person to get more support. So building in some kind of expertise, whether it's a go-to person, whether it's a, a committee, whether it's often within the workplaces that might sit with um, HR. I mean, all of these things can be very successful if they're built into a culture that in encourages open communication and respect. Hang on a sec. Knows the impacts, understands the behaviours, can be up to date with the policies and reporting processes. If you've listened to each episode so far, could this be you? Almost. There's a bit to go yet. I think people aren't stepping forward when they do have those kind of complaints in their workplaces and partially because they're not seeing that there's implications for bad behaviour. Uh, and that has been the status quo in the past and there hasn't been a really clear cultural message about what is and isn't OK. In our next episode, we'll hear about that thing that we never seem to hear about, the consequences of doing the wrong thing. Right now, you can head to our show notes for a whole list of fact sheets, resources and training options to help you get your policies and reporting processes up to scratch. Plus, if there's someone who you think would benefit from listening to this, share it with them or leave a review on your favourite podcast app. My name is Penny Terry and you've been listening to Rule of Thumb, a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. This project was funded by the Tasmanian Government through the Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.